Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone from around the world listening live via iHeartRadio or listening on the podcast because you didn't catch us live on broadcast radio. It's so exciting to be here with you guys today. My mom just got out of the hospital, so I want to thank everybody at Indian River Medical Center for taking such great care of her and the VNA who is continuing to do that at home. So thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone. You know, um, we have to all band together in this world today and teamwork and being willing to listen to others to gain knowledge from the experience of others is something that I've learned over the years, not only via healthcare, but because of the businesses I've, I've owned, the businesses I've worked in and uh, the business that I sold. And part of what I get to do as a radio host and a podcast host is to interview exceptional people that have shifted my perspective around things because they've asked me some questions that made me really truly think. I also get the opportunity to turn the mic on other people who are used to being behind the mic. And that's what's going to happen today. I've got John Warlow, founder of Built to Sell and the Automatic Customer, who interviewed me a few months ago on selling my company, Guardian Angel Computer Services, and which ended up being a on Forbes.com and an article as well as the podcast. And what I loved about John interviewing me was he made me really rethink some of the things that happened leading up to the sale of my company, during the sale of my company, and post-sale of my company that I hadn't really realized at the time. So it was a lot of fun to reflect back and see what's going on. And we're going to be talking to John today about what you can do to build a business that can thrive without you and how to create a subscription business in any, any, any industry. This man is brilliant. I am so thankful he agreed to be on the show and let me turn the mic on him. Um, John, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Laura. It's it's exciting to have you on. And I loved the questions you asked me because you really made me think about a few things around my former partner and and a couple of other things. Where did you learn that questions were so important? Wow. I, uh, I can't remember. I used to produce a radio show. Now, this is going back 20 years called Today's Entrepreneur, where I had the opportunity to interview a different entrepreneur every day of the calendar year for three straight years. So, I asked them the same kind of questions. I asked them, you know, if you, the basic core question was, if you had it to do over again, what would you do differently? And these were really successful entrepreneurs. And I found that question to be my favorite because it really made them think back on the entire journey of their sort of entrepreneurial life. And, you know, what one thing would they do differently? I heard all kinds of crazy stories and uh, that was a fun show. But I guess that was my training, it, not formal, but it, it worked. I sometimes find that the informal training is more relevant than the formal training so many of us go through. I, I agree. I, you know, when I hear about people spending hours and hours poring over Excel spreadsheets before they've actually started the company, 
you know, I, I really give my head a shake because all of those assumptions that we sort of build the spreadsheets on and kind of coming up with the idea for a business are, are generally not worth the, the, the paper they're printed on or the, you know, the, the pixels that are on your screen because, of course, they're just based on one assumption after the other. I'm a big fan of, you know, the lean startup, if, if you've read any of that work, uh, but the idea of coming up with the, the, the kind of basic you know, least, you know, like least uh, expensive, viable version of what you want to sell and going to market with that and trying to sell it, seeing if people will buy it. I, I remember I interviewed um, a guy named Matt Meeker, who you might know um, as the creator of Meetup or co-founder of Meetup. More recently, I do. He started, yeah, he started a company uh, called Bark Box. And what they do, by, by the way, is kind of an interesting story. They, <laughs> they've discovered that there are two types of dog owners in the world. There are dog owners who treat their dog like a pet, and there are dog parents who treat their dog like a child. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> and for this second group, what they realized is that they're always looking to bring home new toys, new treats for their dogs. And so what Meeker did was he's come up with a surprise box subscription model where basically you put, uh, he puts a, a collection of new treats, new, new dog treats and toys in a box every month and he ships it off to all these dog parents. Well, he's got you know, tens of thousands of subscribers to this box now. But I asked Meeker, I mean, how did you get this thing started? Okay, and before you do that, I'm getting a high sign from, from Sean, my producer engineer. He just wants to know how the clarity is because they're making some changes to the sound on the yeah, studio. Everything sounds good? Sounds great to me. Okay, awesome. Excellent. Great okay, so yeah. subscription business you were talking about. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, no, so Meeker goes, Meeker goes to the dog park in New York where he takes his dog and he's got a, uh, you know, a square app on his phone, which allows him to take a credit card. And he basically starts talking to dog owners about this idea he has. He, does, he doesn't have a product yet. He doesn't actually have any of the, the sort of infrastructure built, really rudimentary infrastructure. And he says, look, we put together this surprise box. Every month I'll ship you a new box. It'll, it'll have a bunch of treats for your dog in it. Do you want to buy one? It's 20 bucks a month. I can't remember the exact amount. I think it was 20 or 30 bucks a month, whatever. And he actually had people get out their credit cards on the spot in the dog park as his way of validating the idea before he went and built all the infrastructure. And so to your point earlier about, you know, formal learning education versus just going and doing it, I'm a big fan of just going and doing it and letting the market give you the feedback that you need. But at the same time, he didn't just go and do it. He had the idea, he sort of fleshed it out, then he presented it informally to the market, right? It's not like just betting the farm and going to do it. It's cautiously, optimistically, and with focus testing out your theory. Yes? No? Yeah, no, I I do agree with that. But I think a lot of people do bet the farm when they invest enormous amounts of time and money in, in a startup without any, uh, any feedback from the marketplace. So I can remember my first startup, but I, I, I can, I've lived this on the wrong side of it. So I can share that story <laughs> with you. When, when I first, after the radio thing, I had this idea for a, a, a magazine, an audio magazine about entrepreneurs. So this is going back 20 years before iPods, before even CDs, this was cassette tapes where I was going to produce an audio magazine once a month. I know it's a crazy idea. You're rolling your eyes just hearing me say this. Like, oh, well, well, back when you did it, yes. Now it's like no-brainer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, you imagine the distribution cost of like shipping out an audio cassette yep. tape. But anyway, it's crazy. 
but uh, you know, I can remember um, spending hours and hours with a designer uh, trying to get the perfect logo and, and, and fussing over the color of the orange in the logo, color of the yellow in the logo, getting, you know, 10,000 business cards created on 100-pound stock and letterhead, and, and, and you know, this is going to be a real business. And within three months, I shut it down because it was a complete bomb. I'd, I'd blown through all the money I'd saved in my entire life. Uh, it was about $17,000 at the time. Um, you know, it was a complete and utter waste of time and my money um, because I was fussing around with the wrong things. And so, to your point, you do have to have some sort of notional concept, call it a straw man for your idea. But trust me when I say that that idea is going to morph many, many times before you actually find something that's going to stick. And so the least money you spend to, to get some actual customer feedback, the better. I mean, I love what you just said, and it threw a question to me to ask out to my listeners. Are you fussing around with the wrong things in your business? Too often we get wrapped up in, is this the perfect orange when what we need to be think orange color for our logo, when maybe we should be thinking about, is this the right product that our clients actually need and want? You know, when you think about, I love your question, Laura, when you think about that question um, and the, the the amount of money that was spent on the Nike logo, you know, Nike, whenever they do those brand equity studies in the United States, you know, like Nike's brand is worth whatever, tens of billions of dollars. It's like the most incredible brand of like all time, et cetera. And people think that that logo has something to do with it. Well, Phil Knight had that logo commissioned for, I want to say it was less than a hundred bucks. I may be wrong, but by not by much. Um, your logo means nothing. Trust me when I say that how beautiful your logo is will make no difference to the viability of your company. If you look at the Starbucks logo, right? I mean, not a logo that you would immediately look at and go, oh, what a wonderful, amazing logo. It's kind of complex. It's sort of like this crazy design. Um, not, not a nice, clean design like Apple where you go, yeah, I get why that's worth something. So don't get fussed about how pretty your logo is or how wonderful it looks. Trust me, it, it won't make a difference in the world. You can make a crappy logo and, and build a very valuable business, or you can spend tens of thousands of dollars on a logo and your business will be worth nothing. doesn't matter. When I first started Guardian Angel Computer Services, I had a logo that somebody from the corporate world that I used to work at in graphics said, I want to create you a logo. And he created me a logo. And about two years later, one of my clients said, you know, I love what you do. Your product is amazing. You guys give the best service in the world. I hate your logo. Here's <laughs> what our graphic artist came up with. It's we've created all new logos and everything for you. We hope you don't mind. <laughs> and I laughed because it, it's what you just said, John, right? It's it wasn't about my logo is it's about what stood behind that that okay. mattered. And I ended up getting great brand new free logos and letterhead <laughs> and everything. And it was truly exceptional. So um, it's not so much about the logo. That's a great reminder for everybody. We're about to go into our first commercial break. So I'd like to propose out to our listeners 
um, what, John, you were just talking about. Are you fussing around with the wrong thing in your business? And what are the right things for you to be fussing around with right now? When we come back with John Warlow, founder of Value Builder System and Built to Sell and the Automatic Customer, he's going to share some insights on what are the right things to be fussing around with in your business. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Success comes from not only what you know, but also who you know. Welcome back to It's All About the Questions with award-winning author, Laura Stewart. John, you've got two amazing books out there, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, and The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry. My guess is that along the way of writing those books and creating your amazing value builder system that... You've learned some of the right things that entrepreneurs need to be fussing with. Can you share some of that with my listeners? What are some of the things that they need to be thinking about and fussing with in their businesses so that they can build them to take them to the next level? Yeah, you know, you're right. With the value builder system, we we have a process we go through. And the first step we have everybody go through is something called the scalability finder. And, And what we're trying to do is identify something in a company that can scale beyond the owner. Um, so I was just listening to your commercial break with Mike Campbell of appliance repair. So Mike does appliance repair, which is, is probably a great service and probably has a great, uh, history of serving customers there. What we would do with someone like Mike who has his own business was we say, okay, what element of appliance repair, uh, can we scale beyond you, Mike? Because for a business to scale and grow and be valuable, it, it has to be, it has to work without the owner there. And so we would, we would take someone like Mike through a process where we would identify the three things that make up the, the, the sort of three legs of the scalability stool, if you want, if you will, which are, it's got to be a, a service or product that you can teach to employees. So we look at teachability. Uh, it's got to be something that your customers find uniquely valuable coming from you. So it's not a commodity. And number three, it's got to be repeatable meaning there's got to be some sort of repeat purchase cadence that customers have. So we would, we would go through and look at your business and try to, to identify which products and services rate highly on those three metrics, teachability, value, and repeatability. And number two, which ones score really low? So in Mike's case, there may be services that he provides, like maybe he has a, a service where he goes out and reprograms really high-end wolf stoves, and that's because Wolf is a very high-end product, and it's a very complicated product to, to program. He's the only one that can do it. Well, that's a product that would probably rate really high on value, meaning it's for people with a Wolf stove, it's really, really important they get it fixed when it goes wrong. But by the same token, it's not something he can easily teach people. So it would score low on teachability. So the first step in our process is to figure out, okay – how do all of our, you know, get a whiteboard out, get a, get a notepad out and, and write down the names of all the products and services that you provide today and then give them a score out of 10 on how teachable they are to employees, how valuable they are to their customers, and then how repeatable they are. And then you're really trying to just isolate the products and services that score the highest on that three-point metric. Now, what if you can't think of three legs? 
maybe you have something you can teach to your employees, but it's not necessarily repeatable. Yeah, the, the more common experience for folks is that the things that are most teachable are least valuable. So usually there's an, there's an inherent kind of uh, competitive tension, if you will, between the, the services or products that are highly teachable and those that are valuable. Because most of the really teachable products and services that we have are also commodities. And so what you can often find or, or the, the sort of secret to blasting through that barrier is, is, is tr- try to look for all of those highly teachable but low-value products and see if there's a bundle in there. When you bundle up a certain set of products, you'll often find that the bundle themselves becomes more valuable. Just a quick story on that. There's a guy named Darren Root who went through this process. He runs an accounting firm in Indiana, and he realized that he had lots of different high-value products but weren't very teachable. And then he had a bunch of things like bank reconciliations um, in his accounting firm. They did you know, uh, payroll for employees. And, and what he found was that there was a bunch of things that were very teachable. He could hire y- y- young accountants, young bookkeepers to do, but weren't very valuable. But when he bundled them up, he created something called the boss system, back off the support system. It was a productized service similar to your guardian angel service where it was a, a, a productized service. And because all of the commoditized services were all in this one bundle, he was able to go to business owners and say, look, if you hire us to do the boss system, you don't need a back office person anymore. So the person you were paying forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year to run your back office, you don't need to employ that person anymore. So all of a sudden the value proposition of individual you know, services was very low, but the collective, this bundle, was really valuable. And so uh, so that's a secret. So you'll see a lot of tension between what what People really value coming from your, your business and also what uh, is, is, is kind of more commoditized um, but, but not teachable. So it, that's where you see the, the, the natural tension. And think about bundling in that case. I love the concept that he did. It's it's what we did with Guardian Angel was took a lot of those, you know, checking for any viruses, routine updates, all these other things that were annoying and can be costly when you're doing them yourselves and, and bundled them together. Is that something that you feel is available in, say, all industries or is it unique to some specific industries? I mean, I think you can productize pretty much most services, and that's really what we're talking about. We're we're saying, you know, services are generally a pretty crappy business model, right? You, you know, when we buy services, we expect the, the you know the person to show up who sold us the service. So all of a sudden, you're 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 expecting Mike Campbell to show up with Mike Campbell's appliance repair. So it's it's the person whose name is on the door. Um, oftentimes, we charge by the hour, so there's no scale in the business. And then oftentimes, it, it's our our names are deeply associated with the company itself. And so when, when we want to retire or sell it or whatever, you know, it's hard to do that. Like you expect Mike to show up at Mike Campbell Appliance Repair. Um, poor Mike. I have no idea if he can actually <laughs> is. You know, but you know what I mean? Like when you're Maybe you need to offer Mike a free consult after this is yeah, all over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but what, we, what you want to do is productize your service. And what I mean by that is, is if you offer whatever, consulting services, architectural design, graphic design, um, uh, uh, home maintenance services, whatever, you want 
want to give it a name and give it a formal noun, meaning you actually capitalize it. You put you trademark it, you protect it, and, and, and it makes it look like a thing because we're used to buying things as opposed to buying people, which are services, buying things you don't expect the person to show up. Um, so that's that's another sort of secret to, to making this transition into a more scalable, sellable company is, is trying to productize whatever service you offer. I love that you mentioned trademark and productizing. Just the other week, I had uh, Jason Webb on, who is just one of the most brilliant IP attorneys out there. And we talked about trademarks and copyrights and, and different things that people need to be thinking about and what makes something something you can trademark or copyright. And he offered all of my listeners a free consult, which was really nice of him to ask them any question they want. (laughs) Um, So when you're thinking about creating products and creating your company, you you mentioned something that a lot of my listeners, I think, probably sat up and started thinking about. A lot of people use their names to create Mm -hmm. their companies. I did not when I started Guardian Angel Computer Services. My current business is Wisdom Learned, so that if I ever do want to sell whatever commodities and and learnings and teachability I have in it, it is available to do that. But what about people who say are authors or they're just currently, they're doing one-to-one coaching or things like that, so they called their businesses their names. What are your thoughts around that and how they can move perhaps from that or still have value? to build sell. Yeah, for sure. So it's it's one I've I've lived myself. I've I've started uh, five companies, four of which I've exited, one of which was called uh Warlow, which is my surname. And so I've lived this uh the hard way. Uh what what as everybody knows whose name is on the door in their company is that when a customer calls, especially a big customer, uh one that's influential or important or thinks of themselves that way, guess who they want to deal with? They want to deal with the guy who's, or the gal whose name is on the door. And so that was tough. It was always difficult for, for us to, to hire salespeople because given that my name was on the door, if, you know, somebody wanted to, to buy from us in a significant way, they wanted, they expected me to show up. So it was, it was limiting. Um, we took the, uh, the approach, which I would recommend anybody in the same situation take as well, which is to start branding a thing beyond your name. So, for example, we've all know the company Johnson and Johnson, right? It's a it's a it's a family company. I mean, it's it's a you know it's a consumer products company. But arguably, we now know the 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 brands behind Johnson and Johnson more. Like Baby Powder is a, is a brand. I uh, you know I think they own Band Aid as an example is a right. brand. And so they've 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 slowly but surely moved away from these two brothers named Johnson and Johnson who founded okay, the company. Okay, and I'm just getting the high sign that we're going into the news break. Sorry for the last minute on that. I'd like everybody to think about as we go into the news break, what item inside your business can you make its own name? We'll be right back with more from John Warlow. Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. 
Welcome back, everyone, after the wonderful national news break. If you're listening on the podcast, welcome back, because like that was just an instant for you since I cut all the news and commercials out onto the podcast. We're here with John Warlow, founder of the Value Builder System, and has a great new book that came out last year, The Automatic Customer Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry. John, it was so much fun being interviewed by you, and it got me thinking about my, my current business of Wisdom Learned. And creating subscription models where you don't have to keep recreating the wheel over and over and over again, you have something that people can subscribe to and you provide content for them or you do something for them every month and what that might be. Are there some things that you really need to be thinking about that help make a subscription model in your business be effective yeah, for sure. So you're right. You know, our the research in the book, we identified nine different models. And that doesn't mean that you have to replace all of your revenue uh, with a subscription model. It could mean that you just pick up an extra 5 or 10% revenue through recurring sources, uh, which will have a good impact. You know, I think that the thing to think about when it comes to subscriptions is that when somebody subscribes, somebody gives you their credit card and says, you know what, you, you keep billing this thing until I tell you to stop. That is a huge, um, a huge vote of trust in, on behalf of the customer. And so the customer either has to really trust you or believe, I think actually trust is a minimum. So they, they've definitely got to trust you. But beyond that, they've got to believe that there is some inherent benefit that that they are going to gain that they would not gain through dealing with you on a transaction model uh, because they're giving up some freedom, right? They're giving up uh, freedom, which is their ability to transact as they need something in return for the automatic uh, sort of nature of a subscription. I mean, if you take Dollar Shave Club, right, um, that was recently acquired, you know, their their value proposition is, look, it's 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 no fun to replenish your razor blades. The, the guys keep changing the blade format for, anyway, so you never have the right handle. So we're going to deliver them to your door, uh, and it's not going to cost you as much as if you have to go down to Walgreens to buy your razor blades. So the value proposition is you never have to forget uh, or if you forget, it doesn't matter uh, to pick up razor blades. And so that's what the value is in the case of Dollar Shave Club for which they are asking for your credit card. Um, but it's always going to be the customer's preference if given the choice to be able to go in and go to Walgreens and buy their, their razor blades um, if, if you don't give them some other benefit that overrides that, um, that transaction business model. All right. Well, how does somebody like Dollar Shave Club make money? Because in in their case, they weren't really profitable before they got sold. And it seems like sometimes you have to make that subscription price so much less than your actual cost and hope you make it up in quantity. Mm. Yeah. So... So a couple of things within that. So Mike Dubin, the guy who started, uh, co-founded Dollar Shave Club, uh, made all his money on earning on the turn, meaning you know he kept a chunk of Dollar Shave Club. It was it was purchased for a billion dollars, uh, five times revenue. So he he didn't necessarily make money every month. They were not making money every month on uh, paper, but he wanted to sell his company. And so subscription companies are imminently more sellable than transaction-based companies. So one philosophy to making money could be, hey, I'm just going to break even on this, but know that this business is going to be 
more valuable down the road. I think that's that's one approach that might work for some people. I, I think a broader application to this is to is to disabuse yourself of the idea that just because you have offer a subscription, the value proposition has to be money savings because it doesn't. I mean, I, I talked about Matt Meeker before the break at BarkBox. You're not getting cheaper dog biscuits when you subscribe to BarkBox. What you're getting is the, the surprise of a new box of treats coming. It's the curation. It's the discovering new stuff. That's the value proposition. It's not that you're getting cheaper stuff. Um, you know, in the case of Dollar Shave Club, while the name suggests that they have cheap razor blades, they actually have three different razor blades, and the pricing is somewhat comparable as you would get at a Walgreens. Their big value proposition is, hey, we're going to deliver them so you don't have to go down to Walgreens and pick them up. Um, so, so I don't want you to think subscription means cheap. That's, that's not the case. Okay. Now, what if your subscription doesn't have a thing? So it's not a Dollar Shave Club, it's not a Bark Box or a Birch Box, or even the new Oprah Box that she's got, that she started doing as a subscription model with some of her favorite things in there. What if it's services? How do you figure out how to price those services in a subscription? Because a lot of those are small businesses that would like to sell but they really need the revenue streams at the same time they're creating a subscription model. Yeah, so so how do you price it and cash flowing it are two different questions. I think what you want to do to to figure out if you've got a service business and you want a product or you want to you want to create a recurring revenue model. What you want to do is think about what the ideal customer relationship would be like. Like in a perfect world, how would your customers buy from you? Uh, to go back to at the commercial break, uh, the podcast listeners won't have heard of this, but Mullinary Pools was one of the advertisers. So Mullinary Pools is, you know, they refurbish swimming pools and they probably sell chemicals and so forth. So if you're a swimming pool company, you have to run advertising to get people to come into the store and hopefully buy from you or get them to call you to come refurbish your swimming pool. In an ideal world, my guess is Molinari would love to have customers who bought automatically, meaning they came every two weeks. The, the customer agreed to have Molinari come every two weeks and rebalance the chemicals in the water, make sure there's enough chlorine and so forth. Sending a technician to do that every two weeks or every month or whatever is something we'd probably love because if they did that, they would build up a recurring you know, base of revenue. And so what I want you to think about if you have a service business is in a perfect world, if I could give my customers a lobotomy and change <laughs> something about the way they pay and bought in the ideal way, what would that look like? And then bundle in the service offering that says, hey, this is the ideal solution that we provide. At that point, you need to price it. You may just price it out what the cost of – if you're going to spend attention twice a month. Hey, John, here, I'm hearing some, uh, some breakup. In, in the line, I don't know if maybe you moved from where you were talking or it's just on my end. Were you able to hear that blipping? It was not. Does it sound better now? Okay. Yes, it does. Thank you. We we're kind of getting that every couple of words thing. So go ahead. Continue what you were saying. I was just going to say that you could um, you, you could price it based on the cost of 20 technicians. Could you discount it a little bit because you're not having... To advertise them in, um, but that's that's one piece. You price it, the, the cash flowing it, it. Don't be afraid to charge for your subscription upfront because we're actually 
socialized to buy something from. Think about the last time you subscribed to a magazine. Um, as you pay for all year ahead, and people just very social buy subscriptions that way. So, if you're worried about cash flow, consider offering some annual subscription where they pay for that annual subscription upfront. Okay, and I think we're having some technical difficulties. I'm hearing some blipping coming. Um, I'm hoping my listeners are are not hearing that. Um, and Sean's saying he can hear you fine on his headset, so it must just be something inside the studio booth. Okay, cool. I'm I'm good with that. I always want to make sure that my guests um, can be heard clearly because you were saying such brilliant things, John. <laughs> All right, so we talked about some things that you need to think about when you're pricing, when you're creating your subscription models, whether it's a service business or it's a product business. Is there a secret psychology to getting people to buy it besides lobotomizing them? John, are you there? Yeah, back to earlier, you know, Sam. Okay. Can you hear me okay, Laura? I can hear you okay now. You disappeared there for a moment. Okay, go ahead. The psychology really comes down to 10xing your value proposition because give up something. Okay. Uh, give jo- flexibility and in return, give them something. John, we're going to go into commercial break because there's something going on here. So um, I'm going to trigger Sean to get me to do that. And I'm going to have you hang up and call back in. Okay. So everybody, we're going to commercial break right now. And we'll be right back with more from John Warlow. Success comes from not only what you know, but also who you know. Welcome back to It's All About the Questions with award-winning author Laura Stewart. The joys of live radio. You never know what's going to happen, especially if somebody's calling in and not physically in the studio with me. So, John, thanks for hanging up and calling back in. I think you were hit by that problem that's still out there on the internet where um, there's a lot of slowness going on and because you said you were on a, a VoIP line. So thank yeah, you. For, so thanks yeah. for calling back in. <laughs> no, my pleasure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, I love the internet. I love being able to do my show with people from all around the world. It's just sometimes it would be so nice to just have them right here in the studio with me, looking me in the face and we could do video and we could have never worry about sound because we're right here and we control both ends. So, uh, but my listeners understand that's, that's the beauty of live radio, right? That's right. Okay. So we were beginning to talk about, is there a a secret sauce to Mm. selling subscriptions to people? And, um, you know, I, one of the biggest issues people tell me with selling subscriptions is that people leave, you know, are there reasons they quit and, and how do we get them? So how do we lock them in? You know, how do we get them to subscribe in the first place? And then how do we keep them? Yeah, it's a good point. So so your churn rate, which is your your percentage of people that, that leave or quit the subscription is going to be impacted by how well they embed what you do into their daily lives. So, um you know what if you if you offer a subscription service like a content subscription service for example you're going to want to make sure they're logging in regularly and really adopting and absorbing the content you provide i mean it's kind of it's basic uh consumer psychology that if they're not using what they're paying for they're going to 
subscribe, they're going to unsubscribe. One of the ways that you need to think about sort of impacting their behavior is the onboarding window. And the onboarding window is what subscription company operators think about is that it's generally the kind of 60 day window between the time the customer gives you their credit card number um, and the time and 60 days hence from that. And that's really the opportunity you have to impact their behavior, get them to change something about their, the way they, they think about themselves, the way they kind of process their day, where they, if it's a business to business context, the way they, 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 they do business. Because once that 60 day window closes, very difficult to get them to change behavior. So you'll find that, that the folks who embed early uh, and change behavior tend to stay very a long, a long time, whereas those where the onboarding experience is kind of bumpy and, and, and they don't get using it quickly, they'll often attrite, they'll often churn or cancel uh, because they just didn't adopt. So it's that 60-day onboarding window that's the secret. Okay, so you've got your 60-day onboarding window. Do you offer a refund? I, I know myself, any program I do is a 30-day no questions asked money back guarantee. I've seen people have that in some of their subscription things, especially where they, you know, people have immediate access to everything past and present that's going on. And at the end of the 30 days, people leave because they're like, oh, I checked out everything I wanted to check out. So there's no reason for me to stay. How do you mm. handle that? Well, it comes down to the model. So one of the nine models uh, is the all you Basically, you're, you're putting a, a whole cloud content online and letting them access it all at the same time. In that case, you're right. They could harvest all that content, consume it all, and then leave after 30 days. So you, you're probably going to want to you know, have a subscription for a year and, and, and get them to sign up for the year before you give them access. Another way to do it would be to have a trial where you're only giving them access to a certain portion of the content. The other way, if you're thinking of a content subscription model, uh, is one we call the membership website model, where they're getting access to content, but on a a, a sort of uh, timeline. So it's not all coming to them at once. So they've got to continue to, the drip over time to consume. Um, what I think you'll find is that it's generally business-to-consumer models will offer some sort of cancellation clause, like you can cancel any time, or a money-back guarantee. Those are pretty typical. Ancestry.com, for example, has their 15-day money-back guarantee. Those are pretty common models in a business-to-consumer context. But if you were a business-to-business context, those usually live on annual contracts where there is no opportunity to cancel. So again, it depends whether you're selling to consumers or businesses. When I had my tech company, we were business to business, but I did always offer a 30-day out for both of us. It wasn't just one-sided. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. not only could we get out of the contract that we signed with them, but they could get out of it with us if it just wasn't working. Because you start uncovering things when well, they, you're inside yeah. it. This is a really important point. The reason business to business contracts are typically not cancelable, meaning they, they are duration, they are termed, is because not only is it important for the consumer to have access to uh, the product, but it's also important that the provider agrees to provide over the life of the subscription. Because what people don't want in a business context is for them to change their business model. Let's say Salesforce.com. Let's say you adopt Salesforce.com. You train all your people how to use it. And then six months later, Salesforce.com stops selling software. And you've sunk all this money into training people. So as much as Salesforce wants this, this the consumer also wants the contract because they want to be here 
if they're going to adopt it, change their behavior of their company, that that's going to be around for a while. So it works both ways in a business-to-business context. Which do you think has, and I know this is a very subjective question to you, which do you think has more longer-term um, value or revenue? Let's let's change from value to revenue because they're they're different. Um, a business to business membership subscription model or a business to consumer, or are they so completely different that there's no way to compare them? So keep in mind that the membership website model is one of the nine subscription models. I wouldn't want your listeners to take away that when we talk subscriptions, a synonym for that is a membership website, because that's not really the case. There's eight other models, but if we're just talking about membership websites, business-to-business membership websites are going to be much more valuable than business-to-consumer ones. And that comes down to the churn rate. So a business-to-consumer, uh, you know, they're, they're not making off of websites. So a workout program or a yoga subscription, the, the attrition rates are very, very high because after a few months, they stop using it and they cancel. Whereas a business-to-business membership website, so restaurantowner.com, where they teach you how to be a better restaurateur, that's actually impacting the pocketbook of the restaurant owner. That's going to have a much higher uh, retention rate, much lower churn rate than you know yogavideos.com. So the business-to-business models are going to be much more valuable uh, and a much lower churn rate generally. I just got followed on Twitter by a woman who is a Harvard topper of her class um, attorney who over years of being an attorney and, and all of that other stuff, she finally said, you know what? I want to support other attorneys in growing their business. So she created a subscription model and a service where she helps other attorneys be better attorneys. Love it. Love it. Love I, it. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I'm going to have to talk to her some more. I don't remember her name off the top of my head, but she just followed me on Twitter. And, and I just love that, thinking about what's going on in your business and what have you learned doing your business that can help other people doing a similar business. That's what I, I hear you saying. There's something in there that pretty much everybody can help somebody else in their business. Yeah, that's one application of the subscription model. There's a, a dance studio up in New Hampshire um, where they, they, they've got exceptional results, great students, great satisfaction levels, great retention rates. And she built a website called dancestudioowner.com. And she teaches how you know dance studio owners, particularly new ones, how to create a professional dance studio. That was a company that was actually acquired by Revolution Dancewear um, a couple of years ago because dance to take the conversation full circle, subscription businesses are eminently more sellable than non-subscription businesses. People want them, right? So uh, they tend to be businesses that are easy to sell and they get a premium when they do sell. They increase your valuation. I mean, something you and I had talked about quite a bit, the more recurring revenue you have in your business under contract, the more likely it is that somebody's going to say, hey, this is somebody I want to acquire. Absolutely. I mean, I just did a um, a podcast uh, yesterday with uh, a guy who built uh, the Learning House. I think it was called the Learning House. Yeah, um, yeah, the Learning House, where they had a subscription model for uh, um, people who went through college programs. 
And he went to sell the company, and it, the, it, he got an offer of four times revenue. So most people listening to this who four know about Four times revenue? Yeah, four times wow. revenue. So most of us have heard, you know, four times profit or four times EBITDA as, as pretty common multiples and slightly, you know, largish businesses. Um, he traded his company at four times revenue. So a company of eight million in revenue sold for twenty-eight uh, and change. Uh, there's an example of of the impact of recurring revenue. They have a hundred percent of their revenue coming from recurring sources, and it makes a huge difference. This has been such a great interview, and I I could go in a lot of different directions and have you on again without even thinking twice about it because you have so much great content. But we're at the end of the show and people want to know because somebody has uh, sent me a text. How do we find out more about John Warlow and where do we get his books? Sure. So best place to go is valuebuilder.com. There's a 13-minute questionnaire you can take, and we'll give you a score on your business and and how it would be viewed through the eyes of an acquirer. We'll give you eight different things to think about in terms of ways to improve it. So that's at valuebuilder.com. And then you can get uh, the books anywhere books are sold, Amazon, uh, those kinds of places. Builttosell.com is another website you can uh, you can get the book, uh, or at least you can link to all the retailers. So builttosell.com. And you're out there on Forbes.com, and you have your own podcast, which is Built to Sell, correct? Yeah, Built to Sell Radio. Yeah, Built to Sell fun. Radio. He's got some great content out there. Any of you, any of my listeners, um, if you have a business, thinking about starting a business, it's one of the podcasts I truly recommend you begin listening to on a regular basis because it just has so many great guests and and people that are teaching you from inside the trenches, which is the best way to learn. And you'll learn some great questions to ask yourself and hopefully get some great answers. So John, last thought you'd like to leave the audience with? No, I think it's just the power of recurring revenue. It's it's what we've talked about at at different times throughout the interview. And that is that it is the, is probably the single most misunderstood attribute. And, and yet it is the most powerful that if you can create some, some annuity streams coming into your business that don't rely on you personally, um, you know, picking up the phone and calling your customers, that is going to have profound impact on your quality of life, but also, you know, the value of your business downstream. I love it. So everybody, when you're thinking about your business, what are some smaller, lower value services you have that you can apply the three legs of the school of scalability to teachability, value, and repeatability, and then package that out to your customers. Thanks for being here with me, John. It's uh, always a pleasure. Thanks, Laura. Remember, everybody, the right questions truly can change your life. So what are you asking yourself today? Have a great day, everyone. And let me know if there's something I can do to help you have a better day. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today. 